Well, we are into week three now as Redemption Church, and uh, I just want to encourage you to kind of stay up to date on these uh, early sermons. I know it's hard summertime and things are going on and, and there's travel to do and all of that, but um, we're just trying to lay this foundation of who we are as a church. And uh, we've, we've talked about the name Redemption Church. What does it mean to be redeemed? Uh, seems to me if you're going to go to a church called Redemption Church, you ought to know what redemption's all about and uh, have a pretty good idea of why we've chosen that name. Um, we spent the last two weeks uh, then looking at this kind of first element we call redemption life, abiding in Christ. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What's the significance of that? How do we do that? Uh, and uh, we're going to start the next two weeks now talking about the second element, grow in the church. How do we grow in the church? What's the significance of that? Uh, and here's the thing, in years to come, we're going to be using this language. We're going to be called by this name. And so your experience in the church is just going to be richer. It's going to be more beneficial to your walk with Christ and your connection to the church as, as we're going through this together is going to be fuller uh, if you understand what we mean by these words, if you understand what we're talking about with these phrases uh, so one of the things we've done to help you with that, we've, we've started an account on a, a website called SoundCloud. Uh, so if you go to soundcloud.com and just search for Redemption Church Olds, or you can get there by our website, um, you'll find all of the sermons from Ephesians are posted there. You can go back to those, uh, and then we're also uh, putting these ones together, a nice little playlist you can kind of follow along, and if you're gone for a week, you can look back and catch up. Um, so I hope you'll use that. I hope it'll be beneficial to you uh, and that we would just kind of be tracking together uh, on this journey. So this week, as I said, we're going to begin to look at this idea of grow in the church. And, and today we're going to look at this concept of growth. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about in the church and why that is so significant um, But as we consider this idea of, of growing in the church... I want you to stop and just consider our culture and, and this obsession that our culture has with fitness. Every magazine stand, every commercial break, every Hollywood movie, every Netflix show has as one of its central pieces at least one person in peak physical fitness. That's kind of the, the average, isn't it, as we're watching movies, is, is this uh, absolute perfect toned individual. As you scroll through Facebook, you'll see all kinds of advertisements for, for diet tips, for workout routines you're going to get. Uh, here, here's how you too can have the body of your favorite Hollywood star. Here's how you can do it. Uh, top of that, there, there are all kinds of diet plans that are just presented to us constantly. There's the, the Atkins diet, the keto diet, the paleo diet, the THM diet. There's high fat diets and low fat diets and everything in between. And if that's still not enough... Uh, there's a gym on every corner, people paying $300 to $1,000 a year uh, for a membership, never mind personal trainers, and, and there's spin classes, and aquasize, and jazzercise, and zumbas, and yogas. It's endless. The opportunities are everywhere. And they're all selling the same thing, really, aren't they? They're selling life. Here's how you get life. That's the promise. Not only will you live longer, but you're going to live better. You're going to be happier. You'll be like this celebrity. No, nobody wants to be like that, that mopey guy in the stained t-shirt with the dim lighting on the before picture. No, we want to be that guy with the, the smile and the six-pack and the after picture with the, with the bright lighting. That's where we want to be. 
And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with being healthy. We ought to care for our bodies. We, we ought to take care of them and, and use them well. If you're on a low-fat keto Atkins diet doing Zumba yoga, carry on. That's good. That's fine. But Paul also lived in a, in a very fitness-frenzied culture, a culture that gave rise to the Olympics and the, the marathon, a culture that had nude statues carved everywhere showing off the male physique. That's, that was idolized. And as much as Paul leaves room for, for fitness to be a, a fine thing, he's amply clear it's, it's not the ultimate thing. It's not the top thing. As we look at a, a fitness frenzy in our world, and, and they employ so much passion and dedication and determination after physical fitness, um, we ought to employ even more passion and dedication and determination in the pursuit of spiritual fitness, spiritual health. We'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. We want you to have God's Word in front of you, on your laps, that you can clearly see. Um, this is not my ideas, my words, but God's words. That's the goal here. Um, not that I have anything of value, but, but God does. Uh, so we want to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, Starting in verse 6, maybe before we read, um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, um, that it is true and trustworthy. Thank you that you've spoken to us in a way that we can go back again and again and be reminded and challenged. Thank you for your promise to be at work through your word in our lives. God, we trust that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we pray uh, the prayer of, of Christ prayed for us so many years ago, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. So God, humble us. Give us eyes to see. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me now, that my words would be uh, your words, that anything, anything I have to say that is not of you would fall to the ground, uh, but that your word would go forward and that we would benefit from it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The first thing we have to see here is just the assumption from which Paul starts. What Paul is saying is, is that being a Christian involves growth. There's a, this is not a strange concept in Scripture. Sadly, it has become a strange concept to many in the church. Uh, we've come to think that, that a Christian is just something you are. It's just a passive thing. I pray to prayer and sometimes I go to church. Um, but other than that, it's just a, a title I have. It's what I am. 
speaking theologically, there, there are three parts to our salvation. The first piece is justification. When we're speaking narrowly and use the word saved, this is what we're talking about. Um, when you trust in Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, we're justified. He calls us as sinners to come and, and to trust in Him. And at that moment, there is forgiveness. Our name is written in His book of life, never to be removed. We become children of God. At that moment, we're saved. That's the first piece. Let's jump to the, the third piece is our glorification. That day when we're, when we're welcomed into heaven, when we receive our glorified bodies, all of sins, damage, and corruption finally put away, all temptation finally gone, we're forever with Christ. We're, we're glorified. That's the completion of our salvation. But here's the thing. If you've, if you've trusted in Christ, you're justified. It's done. It's complete. There's, there's nothing left to add. And we're looking forward to glorification, but we're not there yet. That's when Jesus returns. That will be a great day, but it's not today. We're not there yet. So what do we do now? Where does that leave us today? That seems like a pretty important question. What does it mean to be a healthy disciple of Christ in this space between justification and glorification? And the answer is sanctification. That's this third piece, the middle piece we're justified, and then we're sanctified, and then we're glorified. And all three of these are essential parts of our salvation. Justification is this objective, immediate forgiveness. You're declared righteous in the sight of God. And glorification is our final destiny, where we're going. It's the light at the end of the tunnel. But sanctification is the path that we walk on to get there. And while both justification and glorification are, are events that happen in a moment in time, they're completed. In one second, you were not justified, and then you were justified. And, and in the future, in one second, you are not glorified, and then you will be glorified. But sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a, a journey. Simply put, sanctification means to be set apart. In, in justification, we're declared righteous. God says, I will treat you as if you have never sinned. And in sanctification, He works in us, molding us more and more into that reality, more and more into actual, practical righteousness and holiness. And then, of course, in glorification, that work is completed and finished. But it's sanctification that Paul is talking about in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's sanctification Paul's talking about in Romans 8.29. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's sanctification that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, but now grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's sanctification that Hebrews 12.14 talks about when he says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this process of sanctification is, is key. It's an essential part of, of our salvation and Paul says here it's, it's parallel to physical training. A healthy disciple is not 
weak and limp in his faith. He's not a spiritual couch potato. He's not undisciplined and, and out of shape. He doesn't just continue haphazardly in this space between justification and glorification. To be spiritually healthy is, is in many ways parallel to, to physical training. It's not a passive thing. Now, it is the Holy Spirit at work in us. It is rooted in and, and motivated by grace, but it's not passive. And the assumption of Scripture is that, that in this space between justification and glorification, you ought to be growing. We ought to be pursuing progress in holiness. Paul lays out for us here how we do that. What does it mean to grow as a Christian? And, and like any healthy fitness plan, uh, it involves our diet and our discipline and our desire. So look at first at verses 6 and 7. Paul addresses the diet of the growing Christian. Let me read this again for us. He says, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent Silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. You'll notice we're coming in a bit on the middle of a, of a sentence here, a conversation. Paul's just finished telling Timothy in, in 3.15 that he's writing this letter to those who believe that they would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do we live lives as the church? Verse 16, he gives this kind of poetic outline of the gospel, Jesus was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And then ch chapter 4 begins with him denouncing legalism. It's, it's not about asceticism. It's not about uh, us making our lives hard on ourselves. You don't earn God's favor by, by not getting married or not eating certain foods. That's not what it's about. Then he kind of wraps all of it together. Beginning of verse 6 here, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, and I think that these things, are, he's pointing back to the, to the beginning of the book, all of this that I've talked about, how to live as a Christian, how to behave in the household of God, put these things before the brothers. Then, he says, you'll be a faithful servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and good doctrine. That's the, the healthy diet of a faithful servant of Jesus. That's how we grow. It's by feeding on the words of the faith and good doctrine. That's Timothy's diet. That's what it's made up of. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says in another letter to Timothy, a further letter, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's sanctification. How do we grow? How are we trained up in righteousness? How do we be made complete? It's God's Word. That's sanctification. And just like the kind of food that you eat matters as you're trying to train your body, so also it matters what you put into your mind. What you listen to, what you read, be careful what you subject yourselves to. Uh, specifically, he says, stay away from irreverent, silly myths. 
That's a broad category. I think that's a category that if we're uh, discerning, we could apply to a number of different places around our culture, around the church today. They're irreverent. They don't revere God. They don't respect His Word. They break away from it. They don't hold to it closely. Uh, and, And because of that, they wander off into silly myths. And the word for silly here uh, literally could be translated fit for old ladies. Now, no disrespect to older women. Um, Paul, in other contexts, has very high respect for older women, calling them, Titus 2, to train the younger women. Uh, But the idea here is is kind of a sarcastic phrase, seems to be uh, kind of a common um, phrase in the day. But it was, it's like old wives' tales. This is babble. This is just empty chatter. It's really struck a chord with me. This is something that I've been frustrated with the last couple of weeks. Uh, My wife has heard a a couple of rants on this topic. Um, Just so much of this around our world today. Um, Maybe one of the obvious ways I think we see this pop up is this, this idea you'll hear all over the place right now. Your words have power. Be careful when you, when you hear that. Um, they'll say, you're, you, be careful what you say. Your, your words have power. You'll, you'll speak things into reality. You'll create things by the way that you speak. As soon as you hear that, you can just start shaking your head. It's nonsense. It's not true. It's not coming out of the Bible. Actually, it's, it's more coming from Oprah. It's literally silly myths from old ladies. Um, yes, James says words are powerful. But he's talking about the ability to sin with our tongue and to cause trouble and chaos or bring peace. It's the natural consequences of what we say, not some mystical, magical powers behind your words. That's a silly myth. But more deceptive and and I think a little more pervasive, there's so much just just feel-good nonsense that's peddled as Christianity today. It's just cute stories. It's, it's happy coincidences. It's, it's popular psychology just kind of repackaged with a, with a heartwarming smile and, and maybe if you're lucky, a Bible verse thrown on the end. And, and it's sold as if that's what Christianity is. Like a great example of this I heard on the radio um, just a couple weeks ago and it's, it's haunted me ever since. It's a story of a man who, who came home from work every day and his neighbor happened to notice that, that he stops and there's a, a tree outside his front door and he rubs his hands on the tree and then he goes in home. And when he comes out in the morning, he, he rubs his hands on the tree again and then he heads off to work. And after watching this for some time, his neighbor finally approached him and said, oh, what's with the tree? He said, well, when I come home from work, all of my troubles and and struggles and stress from work that doesn't belong in the home with my family so I I leave my troubles there on my trouble tree and when I come out in the morning again I I pick up my troubles to to take them with me back to work but but the funny thing is they're they're never quite so many and they're never quite so big as they were the night before oh isn't that swell isn't that sweet? We, and the radio announcer goes on to say in her sappiest voice, we could all learn something. Don't we all just need a trouble tree? This is Christian radio. And it's not just there. There are, there are volumes of Christian devotionals. I cringe every time I hear someone say, oh, I was reading in my devotional book, and I think, oh, I hope it's one of the few good ones out there. Uh, there are books just filled with these cute stories, heartwarming tales. And it's not. It's garbage. It's not Christianity. 
And you say, John, it's not that big a deal. Like, it's, it's just a cute story. It's not hurting anyone. It probably has even helped people. Maybe there's some people who, whose evenings at home with their family are better because of the trouble tree story. But that's just it. It's just a cute story. And maybe it has helped someone, but in the process, it has replaced the gospel. It's replaced key truths of Christianity have been cast aside to take on a trouble tree. I don't need Jesus. I don't need to learn to cast all my cares on him because he cares for me. I don't need to learn to rest in his sovereignty, knowing his rock-solid promises that he works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. I don't need all that theology. I just need a trouble tree. It's so much easier. And then everything will be okay. Tell me, is it any different than if we put a statue of Buddha out the front of the house? Is it? It's replaced the gospel. It looks like a cute story, but it's actually a well-disguised lie of Satan that's distracting believers and unbelievers alike, that makes the church look, frankly, pathetic in the eyes of the world. My friends that are not Christians think that's what Christianity is because that's what they see so often. And they think Christianity is ridiculous. It's lame. We need to be done with cute stories, church. We're not about cute stories. We're about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're about salvation. We're about the only hope of escaping the eternal wrath of God for eternity and entering into His presence. True reconciliation with our Creator. That's a, that's a big deal. That's serious. That's amazing news. That's real solid help that rises up to meet the greatest of challenges in this world. It's the answer. All of it. Your parent or your child dies of cancer, your trouble tree is not going to handle it. Neither will Buddha. We, we need the gospel. We need the truth. We need rock solid answers from God's word. Imagine standing in front of a dying man, holding in one hand the pill that would absolutely cure him immediately, but instead deciding to give him a sugar pill. It's harmless. It won't hurt him. It probably even tastes good, and, and he might even feel a little better afterwards having had the pill. It's no big deal. Yeah, it is. We've got to stop wasting time with cute stories and heartwarming but damning distractions. We need to get back to God's Word. We need to feast on, feed on the solid words of the faith and true doctrine. Have nothing to do with these silly, irreverent myths. Feed yourself on God's Word. Read the Bible. Spend time in the text. Listen to, to preaching by trustworthy men who carefully handle the word of truth. Be built up. That's how we grow. That's how we mature in the faith. If, Ephesians 4, Paul says that's why God gave us the, the teaching ministries in the church. Verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. Now, apostles and prophets, those were the, the early church writers of Scripture. And then he goes on to say, 
He gave the evangelists, and the next two are actually grammatically connected. It's the shepherd teachers. So you give evangelists and the shepherd teachers. They're, they're taking the word of God. They're taking what was given in that apostolic age, and they're applying it to the church. And here's why. Here's the, the goal of all of that, verses 12 to 14, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you hear the, the language of growth there, being strengthened and built up? Coming to mature manhood. Are you growing in Christ? Are you getting stronger in your faith? Are you getting more robust in your understanding of God's word? Are you rooted in his truth? Are you growing on a steady diet of the the words of the faith and good doctrine? Scripture that is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking and training in righteousness. That's what we need. Get on a steady diet plan of God's word. Secondly, like any healthy fitness program, growing in the faith requires not only diet, but discipline. It requires discipline. There's, there's work to be done here. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Train yourself in godliness. The word for train here, the Greek word is gumnazo. Sound familiar? it's, It's where we get our word gymnasium. He's saying, go to the godliness gym. I'm sure there's a gold's gym, God's gym pun to be made there, but we'll leave that. Go to the gym for godliness. Brings up this idea of the the smell of of sweat, of motivational music pumping, of no pain, no gain. There's There's work to do here. And if you doubt that, Continue on. He, he builds this analogy out. He says, well, bodily training, physical training is of some value. Training in godliness is of value in every way. So you put effort. We struggle to, to, to work out our physical fitness. You, you plan out healthy meals for yourself, for your family. You, you, you work to fit the, the latest diet plan. You, you carve out a little time every day to, to exercise. And, and you pay big bucks to get to your CrossFit class or your jazzercise. And you spend a couple of nights a week there doing that. Do you make the same kind of sacrifices? Do you have the same kind of perspective and, and dedication to training yourself in godliness? How much more should we employ that same discipline toward godliness? Toward holiness. Nobody sits around on the couch eating junk food thinking that they're just going to magically get healthy. It'll happen. It'll just come over time, won't it? No, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes discipline. Why would we think holiness is any different? My whole life, I I hated running. I hated it. If I did go for a run... By some miracle, I'd get about 100 yards, and then I'm spent. Then it's a walk from there on out. Um, 
and, and I was done. I had friends that were runners, like serious runners, and, and they would try, come on, let's do it. You can train. You, like, we can do a half marathon. We can do a full marathon. Let's, let's go. Come on. And, and I would simply quote to them my favorite Bible verse about running, Proverbs 28.1. Only the wicked runs when no one is chasing him. What are you doing? And then I decided about a year ago that this kind of extra 70 pounds that was hanging around uh, probably needed to go. And so I cut down my eating and I got my diet plan figured out and I started to get a little more active and doing this and that. And eventually there was nothing left to do but to swallow my pride and tie my shoes and go for a run. And yes, my friends made sure to return the many favors of mocking and jesting. Um, but guess what? The first time I went for a run, yeah, about 100 yards. And then I'm, then I'm walking. I'm tired. I'm spent. That's all I got. Next time a little further, the next time a little further, and a little further, and a little further. Now I run. Now I run a lot. I won't stop for three, four, five K, at least three, four times a week in the morning. Um, and, and I don't do more because I don't have time for more. Uh, Sunday afternoon, if I got a good sermon in my ears, I might, I might do six, eight, or ten K just because I can, because I, I really enjoy it. Now, you know where this is going. What changed? Just discipline. Just decided to discipline my body. Decided that tired was no longer an excuse. Decided that I don't like it. It's not going to hold weight anymore. Decided that when my lungs hurt, I was just going to keep going. John, I'm just not a reader. I don't like it. I'm a slow reader. I'm easily tired when I read. I read and I don't understand. I don't remember it. I've never been a reader probably true. I mean, it was all true. But what's the answer? The answer is discipline. The answer is, yep, it's hard. Do it. Push yourself. Keep going. Even when it's hard, even when you're tired, it's no different. You have to train yourself. You have to work at it. Listen to Paul's words, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Let's pause there. What's he saying? There's no participation medals here. Right? Nobody's getting a pat on the back for just showing up. It's not Timbit Christianity. If you want a reward in heaven, if you want the prize, there's, there's work to be done. You, you have to go for it. He continues on, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. He's making this physical to spiritual contrast again. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. No, we need to... Set our parameters here. Yes, we are saved by grace. Not diminishing that. Not at all. It is a free gift outside of anything we do. We are weak and helpless and dead in our sin. And we need to do nothing more than put faith in Christ and be saved. Absolutely and completely. But our sanctification, the, the continuing on of that process, fueled by grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Requires work. And, and our salvation is sure, but there's reward in heaven that God promises for those who, 
work. Those who grow in holiness. Those who give their lives to His service. There's greater increasing reward. That's what we're talking about here. And it takes discipline. You'll not grow sitting on your spiritual couch consuming spiritual cheesies. Paul says, I'm not messing around. I don't run like a guy who, who, I don't run like the crazy guy in the park chasing imaginary butterflies. I I don't fight like someone airboxing in in warm-up. This is the real deal. This matters. It's game day. And there's real eternal reward offered for those who run and run hard. So I discipline my body. So I fight against myself. And my, my, my lazy, sinful flesh rises up and says, no, hit the snooze again. And I, and I headlock that old man and I get to work. Now let's define this holiness, this godliness. What is it that we're training ourselves in? What is it that we're growing in? Our, our diet and our discipline is, is not just around head knowledge. It's not just read the Bible and fill your brain. The way language has changed over the past few years has kind of stolen some good words for us. If this was 100 years ago, we could say train yourselves in religion. That used to be a good word. Um, We've kind of had it twisted on us. Uh, Piety is another good word that seems like nobody knows what that means anymore. But the idea is a reverence for God. That's the word here for for godliness. It's a life that, that shows respect and honor for God. A life that certainly includes being built on this regular intake of His Word, but goes so far beyond that and, and, and pours out in practical obedience. My life actually follows in line. It actually is lived as if God is watching. It's in respect to His holiness. It means I'm not taking sin lightly, but I'm fighting ferociously against it. It means I'm not being casual and slack about growing in, in honesty in love and integrity. It means actually thinking about putting effort into the direction of my life. Where am I going? Where am I spending my efforts? And what's the, what's the drive of my life? Is it about God? Am I looking to that last day of, of glory and the rewards there? Or is it just about here and now and, and me? Is my treasure in heaven or is my treasure in my pocket? Are you disciplining yourself to grow in holiness, to live that life that is truly transformed by the grace of the gospel. I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again. As I grew up in the church and and became kind of a little more self-aware and eventually get uh, involved in, in church leadership, one of the things that was most surprising for me to see and the most painful and heartbreaking to see is how many people, many that I grew up revering and respecting, had grown old in the church, but they had not grown up in the faith. They had never really matured. Coming to find men many, many years my senior in the faith who are still just, just infants in their knowledge of God's Word, still loitering at the starting line as far as their personal holiness was concerned. Christians for years and still never, never read through the Bible. Never built those personal disciplines in any consistent way. 
I tremble to think that could one day be me. That time just continues to slip by and I find myself older and not godlier. Or that that might be the case with someone that the Lord has entrusted to my care in this church. Don't let that be you. But it will be, aside from intentional, active, vigorous diet and discipline and holiness. Read God's Word. Invest time there. Make sacrifices little by little, day by day. Pursue holiness. Don't let up. How often do we say, Oh, I, I would love to spend more time reading my Bible. Oh, I, I certainly want to. I'd love to be a part of small group. I'd love to be consistent at church. But I have soccer. I need my sleep. I only have so many free nights in a week. I have this, 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 and this. And all we do is stack up all of these things that we're saying are more important than godliness. It's more important for me to train myself in sleeping than in godliness. Why do those things take priority? You thought this would be easy? It's not. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's going to take sacrifice. We ought not to be surprised by that. Look at the life of Christ. Look at the life of Paul, of Peter. Those were not easy lives. There's one more element One more piece to this training process. Not only does it depend on diet and on discipline, but finally on desire. Again, it's the same with physical fitness. What is it that drives you? What is it that keeps you going? What is it that makes you get up out of bed in the morning so that you can exercise again before starting your day? What is it that energizes you to do one more set, one more rep? Physically, be all kinds of things. It might be the, the threat of a shortened lifespan if you continue to gain weight and live an unhealthy lifestyle. It might be the, the picture of yourself on the wall from your honeymoon. That's what I used to be like. I'd like to get back there again. Maybe it's the motivation of a friend that encourages you, that, that presses you on, or the, the hope of just feeling better. I want to be able to do things with my kids or my grandkids, and so I, so I exercise. The promise of the world holding out for this physical fitness is, is life. And, and for once, it's a pretty decent promise. That, that idea of, of longer, healthier, fuller, happier, more enjoyable life, there's, there's some traction there. Health is good. The payoff of physical fitness is pretty good, but the payoff of spiritual fitness is infinitely, immeasurably better. Look at Verse 8 again. Read down to verse 10. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. There's this twofold motivation here. Some of it is this life. Some of it is the life to come. Um, now, it, it is an absolute lie that holiness in this life is just a sacrifice. But we buy it. Every time we engage in sin, we believe that lie. We believe that the best things in life are the things that God has forbidden, and it's worth disobeying God just to get the pleasure that comes from that sin. We believe that 
holiness is tantamount to misery. It's dull. It's boring. We're missing out on something if we're living a holy life. And, and that's just not the case. It's just not true. We tell our kids this all the time and, and we see it so clearly with them, don't we? Ephesians 6, 1-3, I hope your kids hear this often. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now listen to this. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you will live long in the land. As we're training our kids, we, we use this phrase a lot. Honor your father and mother. It will go well with you. It will be better for you if you obey. And, and the flip side, when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. It's painful. It hurts. Don't do it. And we see this in our kids. If they obey you, if they honor you, they don't get burnt on the stove. They don't stay up all night and have a horrible day the next day. They don't eat cookies until they throw up. And in much the same way, there's just very tangible Real life benefits to obeying the Lord in this life. It's better. I think maybe one of the easiest contexts to see this in is marriage. Marriages that are plagued by sin are hard, are miserable, are filled with tears and struggles and hopelessness. Separation, divorce is not a good option. It's ugly, it's painful. Anyone who comes through the other end and says, oh, it wasn't that bad and I think it was the best decision in the end, they are lying to your face. I don't care what they say. Holiness, obeying God, following His design makes marriage wonderful, enjoyable, beautiful. And it's not just marriage, it's life. There, there's very practical benefit here and now to holiness. It holds promise for the present life. God designed this life. He knows how it works. He knows what will bring us the true, lasting, long-term joy. There's a reason that he calls us to honesty, to purity, to love, to forgiveness, to patience. It's, it's because it's better. It's because it's good. But it's not just for this life. There's a promise also for the life to come. There's a goal ahead. We're looking forward to eternity. We're looking forward to that reward that he sets out in front of us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Talking about how we live our lives, Paul says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, so he says he's laid the foundation. The foundation is Christ. No one else can lay another foundation except the one that he has laid. But we take that and we build on that. We use our lives to move on from there. And he says, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and then he contrasts, or with wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. The day of God's judgment, the day that Jesus returns, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is, built, is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but us only through fire. Now again, to be clear, we're not talking about salvation. Notice the, the man whose work is, built up, is burned up, he's still saved. But as one escaping through the fire is the guy who, who sneaks out of his burning down house with nothing but a, a pair of singed boxers. He just narrowly makes it out. But those who build with silver and gold and precious stones, it'll last. 
It will survive that testing by fire. That's what he's calling us to. It matters what kind of life you build on the foundation of your salvation. And if you build with this gold, silver, precious stones with with holiness, there's a reward. There's good there that God holds out. There will be a great benefit there, an eternal reward. But if you waste your life, if you spend it frivolously, if you spend it making excuses and spiritually sitting on the couch, on the sidelines, you'll be saved. Your your salvation is not in question based on your works, but, but there's no reward for that. We need to set our eyes and our hearts on that eternal reward. We need to believe Jesus in in his many, many promises, his many times that he calls us to seek that reward. Just hit a couple, Matthew 16, 27. Jesus says, the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then, listen, he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who's left house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Luke 14, 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's a reward. And Jesus puts that reward out ahead of us. He wants us to strive after that. But let's come back to verse 10. Look at verse 10. For this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. First, some people try to make this a statement of God saves everyone. Um, That's just grammatically impossible here. In one sense, he's the savior of all people, but especially, or maybe better would be specifically, those who believe. I think the clearest understanding here is that he is the only savior. He is the savior for all people. There is no other savior. People of every race, every socioeconomic status, there's no other option, but he saves those who believe, those who come to him. And that's our hope. That's what drives us. That's what motivates us and gives us confidence and assurance in this life. Our hope is not set on dead idols. Our hope is not set on heartwarming stories or on diets and workout plans, but on the living God. Even the healthiest man alive will die. Some of them die significantly younger than the unhealthy man who stays on his couch where it's safe. But all of this effort, all of this fighting and striving for physical gain ends. Health will die with him. But there is one who has beaten death. There is one who died and has risen again. There is a living God on which our hope is set. That's what we look forward to. That's why we have confidence as we strive and struggle in this race. And and Paul says, for this reason, we toil and strive. Those are words of exhaustion. For this reason, we spend ourselves because we have a confident hope rested in the living God. Because we know, 
My salvation is secure. I don't have to worry about that because we know that He will make good on His promises. And we know that because He's beaten death. He is the living God, the God of life. Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death for continuing on and off. He's talking about the old system of the old covenant. They died. They came and they served and they died. But he, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's the living God, the living Savior in whom we hope. And we have a living hope, an unshakable confidence. This salvation will be completed. He's not going to let it go. He's not going to fail to make good on his promise. That's our hope. That's why we strive and toil. Uh, So we want to close today remembering again the confidence that we have in Christ. Coming back again to that cross. That though I was a wretched sinner deserving of hell with no hope of ever escaping. That he sent his son to die for my sake. To pay the penalty for my sin. That I could be saved. That I can have that confidence that because he lives, we too shall live. That he is the savior of those who put faith in him. Let that be the driving force behind what we do.